all here today. Um, so great to have all of um, Bianca and Kale's family here. Um, I love dedications. I think it's awesome to see this family growing. And um, I just go, this is a great family um, for him to grow up in. He couldn't ask for a better family. Have you ever heard a story that you just found a little bit hard to believe? Yeah? i got three kids. I hear... And Jordan. <laughs> and I hear a lot of stories that I find hard to believe. You know, the other day I walk into the bedroom and Logan's standing in there, texture in his hand, texture on his face, texture on his body, texture on his legs, texture on the wall. Logan, did you draw on the wall? No, mummy, it was Jayla. Mm-hmm. I also have Cooper, fanatically into cricket and fishing, which lends itself to all sorts of unbelievable stories. And then I have Jordan. And we do not have time to go there. As they say, never let the facts get in the way of a good story, right? But you know, sometimes the facts are the good story. Last year in February, Four Corners ran a story looking into the greyhound industry. Now for years and years, the greyhound industry had been plagued by these um, rumours and whispered stories of trainers who were involved in this horrifying practice of live baiting where they would take a defenceless animal, a piglet, a possum, a rabbit, and they would tie it alive to the lure and send it racing around the track for their dogs to chase and maul. And for years, the greyhound industry has been denying, saying, no, 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 we don't do that. That was the old days. We don't do that anymore. In February last year, after an extended period investigation with um, some of the animal protection groups, Four Corners broke the story of the extent of this practice of live baiting within the greyhound industry. And they found with covert um, recordings, video recordings, and um, through their investigations and their interviews, that this practice was extremely widespread that it extended to some of the best trainers in the industry um, and that it wasn't something that had been removed from their industry. It was rampant through the greyhound racing industry. And their investigation was so thorough that when they were finished, they handed off their um, the information that they had collected, um, the videos that they had made, they handed it to the police and the RSPCA who moved in um, there was a, um, a criminal investigation and many of these trainers who'd been involved in this lost their greyhound licences or had them suspended for um, a certain period of time. Now the work that the Four Corners group did in investigating this and reporting this story was so thorough that in December last year they were awarded the Gold Walkley Award, which is Australia's top journalism honour for their work on this story. You see, sometimes the facts are the good story. Now today we're starting a sermon series on the book of Luke. 
um, and we're going to be journeying through the book of Luke together this year. Um, Now today is our first day looking at that, so we're just going to launch right in at the very start. So um, if you've got a Bible there, if you'd like to grab that um, and we'll have a look. We're going straight to Luke chapter 1 and we're looking at verses 1 to 4. Can you just give me the page number name? Okay, page 820 if you've got one of those Bibles, um, 820. Now Luke starts out his book this way. He says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honourable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Now, the Gospel of Luke is almost universally accepted as being written by Luke, which is why it's called the Gospel of Luke. Um, And we also know that Luke wrote the book of Acts. Um, At the start of the book of Acts, which is... Now, Acts is a record of um, the early church, um, a record of Peter and the way that he preached and converted people, a record of Paul and his missionary journeys. So at the start of this book... Um, of Acts, Luke writes this, in my first book I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. So we know that um, we have the same author writing to the same person um, and that person is Luke. So Luke has written both of these books. Um, Now we also know from references made to Luke throughout the New Testament, there's only a couple of them, but we know from these references that Luke was a doctor. Um, We know that he was a Gentile, which simply means that he wasn't a Jew. Uh, And we know that he accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys. Um, And we know too, from the style of writing that he uses in this introduction, the part that we've just read, that Luke is actually a very well-educated man. Um, The verses that are written here are some of the finest literary Greek that we have in the New Testament. Um, We do go on about how great Paul is, but this is some of the best stuff right here from Luke. And it's written in the style of the best Greek writers of his time. So we know that he's an educated man. Now, Luke, as I just said, was a Gentile. And he was travelling with Paul, who was out preaching to the Gentiles. So the book of Luke is written by a Gentile for the Gentiles um, and specifically for a man named Theophilus. Now, we don't know um, exactly who Theophilus is. Um, We have no historical records and there's no other um, mention of him in the Bible, but we do know something about him from what Luke has written and it's to do with his title. Um, Luke addresses him as Most Honourable Theophilus. Now that title would indicate that he holds some sort of rank or position or social standing within um, the Roman social um, society. Um, The book of Luke is often referred to as the investigative gospel. And if we look closely at the beginning where we just were, you can see why. Um, At the start of his book, um, in verse 3, Luke makes a very clear statement about his work. And he says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have decided to write a careful account for you. So 
Luke starts out by letting his readers know that he's done his research. This isn't a slapped together story. This isn't a collection of rumours. This is a thoroughly and carefully investigated um, document. It's like a bit of a four corners type um, piece of work. It's thoroughly investigated. Sometimes the facts are the good story. Now, given that over a quarter of the content of the New Testament has been written by Luke, with the book of Luke and the book of Acts, um, it's important that we can rely on what he's written, that what he's written in the book actually holds up under scrutiny. Um, Now, one archaeologist has looked at some of the references he makes, and he's incredibly detailed in his geographical references. He makes references to 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands, and all of those line up with what we know from archaeology and ancient records about those places. Um, And also, if we go to the start of chapter 3 in Luke, um, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to because it's a bunch of names and you'll know that I'm not mispronouncing them if you look at them. Um, He says, now... It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman governor. Pontius Pilate was the governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was the ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Etruria and Traconitus. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Now, he's just listed off seven political and religious leaders of the time, just to set the time frame for, hey, this is when this happened. Um, you know, probably two or three would have sufficed and we would have had um, a fair understanding of what's going on and when this is happening. But he just, he wants to make sure that there's no room for misunderstanding, no room for um, not knowing what he means and not knowing the time that he's talking about. And I imagine that possibly Luke was maybe a bit annoying to be around sometimes. You know those people where you know, you're telling the story and it's like, oh, you know, you remember that time we went there and those, those eight guys? And he's like, no, 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 there's only four of them. You know, um, he's painstakingly accurate in his details. Um, but as we know, sometimes these facts are the good story. Now, I'm going to speak briefly on the authenticity of the New Testament because we're going to be looking through this. We need to understand where it's come from and we need to be able to go, yes, I like what's written here. I know that this has come from a place that I can trust. Now, the book of Luke was written almost 2,000 years ago and as such, we don't actually have a copy of it as we don't for many ancient texts from that time. But like any good book from those times... Um, it was copied and distributed many times over. And so we have copies of those texts that have been located in various locations over time. Now, in terms of quantity, how many of these we have? We have almost 40 times more manuscripts of the New Testament than we do of any other ancient text. Now, the next most documented historical text is actually um, Homer's poem, The Iliad, which is the story of um, the Greek and Trojan War. So um, the Trojan horse and all of those details and all the heroes from that, that's our next most documented um, ancient text. And we have 647 manuscripts from that, partial and complete. We have 190 of those that are the complete story of the Iliad. We also have things like Caesar's Gallic Wars, where he has recorded and written all of the things that happened as he um, 
travelled through Gaul and Germania and Britannia and conquered um, and explored all of those countries. We have ten manuscripts from that. Um, we have records of the Peloponnesian War, which is the war between the Greek states of Athens and Sparta. Um, we have eight copies of those. And then we have histories written by Tacitus, who was a Roman historian. Now, he wrote a series of um, historical records of the time of Rome, and there was quite a few books that he, um, I guess like a, an encyclopedia, um, now, through time, some of those parts are missing. We only have an incomplete record of what he's written, um, but we have two manuscripts from that. The New Testament, we have over 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament, partial and complete. It's a well-documented text. In terms of corroboration from independent sources, now, an independent source being a source that's not associated with this Jesus movement, with Christianity. Um, so a Jewish source or a Roman source, um, historians like Josephus or Tacitus, the Roman historian. Uh, we have to date a total of 39 um, independent sources that record details of the life of Jesus. Uh, in terms of objectivity, um, much of what we know and learn about Julius Caesar was written about himself, by himself. Um, and we seem okay with accepting um, what he's written about himself. It's what we use to teach history in our schools. Um, what we have written here about Jesus has been written by an outsider who's come in and is investigating what he's heard now, in terms of proximity to the life of Jesus when this was written, um, Luke is likely to have been written within 30 or so years of Jesus' death and certainly within one generation of the death of Jesus. Now, if we go back and we look at another ancient character like Alexander the Great. Um, now, Alexander the Great was a king, from a Greek king from Macedonia, and he came through and he united all the Greek states who at that point had been all independent. Uh, then he goes through and he conquers Persia, he conquers Egypt, and he moves and extends his empire all the way to India. Um, so we know a lot about Alexander the Great. We have um, two prominent historians who wrote down what happened from his life over 400 years after his death. Now... I love history. Um, it's my favourite thing to do with Cooper at home, and I'm glad he loves it too, because otherwise he'd be really bored. Um, and I think a lot of us find these stories about these historical men and women really fascinating. Um, you know, we look at Ramesses or Cleopatra or Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, and we accept without any real question that these were real people who lived real lives and that their accomplishments and actions have been recorded and preserved through time. And then history bumps into a man called Jesus. And suddenly everything changes. Every word written about him, viewed with scepticism, every story about him called into question, every source considered to be biased or inaccurate or in some way unreliable. Why is that? 
You see, I think the issue that we have with Jesus today is the same issue that Luke sets out to address in his book. And the issue for Luke is not the existence of Jesus. Luke is not trying to prove that Jesus existed. And I think for us, the issue is not really whether or not Jesus existed. If Jesus were just a historical figure like Alexander the Great or Ramesses or Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus, we would have no hesitation in accepting what has been written about him. You see, the issue we have today is the issue that Luke addresses in his book. And the issue is this, that Jesus claims to be the Messiah, the promised Saviour. Jesus claims to be God with us. And that is a claim that we can't ignore and we can't set aside. The claim he makes requires a response from us. So the wrestle that we then face is the same wrestle that Luke sets out to make clear in his book. Is Jesus who he claims he is? Can I trust the truths that he's proclaimed? Does the God of the universe really love me? And did he give all of himself, even his life, for me? Now I mentioned earlier that Luke wrote his book to Theophilus. You know what the name Theophilus means? Loved by God. This book that he wrote is not just for Theophilus. This book is for you, loved by God, so that you can be certain of the truth of what you've been taught. In Luke chapter 2, we see God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, humbling himself to become one of us, to put on flesh and blood and pain and sorrow and to move into our neighborhood, to become one of us, so that you, loved by God, can be certain that there is nothing that he won't do to be close to his children In chapter 5, we see Jesus meeting his disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, sinners in their own words. And Jesus calls them as they are in the midst of their sin to come and follow him so that you can be certain that Jesus comes to you in the midst of your sin and calls you to come and follow him. We see a woman who knows she's sinful recognize something special in Jesus and she brings expensive perfume her best gift and she pours it on Jesus' feet and Jesus is so pleased with her despite her many sins that he forgives her and he restores her in the presence of those who would judge her and condemn her so that you can be certain that when you fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him that there is grace to cover everything. We see the disciples on a boat in the midst of a storm that will completely overwhelm them, that they are powerless in the face of. And we see Jesus calm the storm with his words, 
so that you can be certain that Jesus will calm any raging storm in your soul with his words and that he is the anchor that will hold you through any storm. We see a woman timidly pressing through the crowds, desperate to touch his robe and find healing so that you can be certain that Jesus will not unnotice you. That's not a right word. You do not go unnoticed by Jesus. We see Jesus feeding 5,000 people so that you can be certain that he will feed your soul with the bread of life. We see him heal a man on the Sabbath so that you can be certain that Jesus values people over religion. We see incredible inclusion of Samaritans and Gentiles and women so that you can be certain that there are no outsiders in his kingdom. He tells the parable of the great feast where a king sends his servants out to find the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and the outcasts and to bring them in to eat at his table so that you can be certain that the invitation to the kingdom of God is for everyone. We have stories of a lost sheep, a lost coin and a lost son so that you can be certain that no matter how lost you are, how far you have wandered or how wrong you have been, that Jesus looks for you and welcomes you and celebrates you because you are worth so much to him. And then we see Jesus himself put aside his power and his position and his title And he humbles himself to die on a cross so that you can be certain that the redemption that he promised to Adam and Eve way back when they first sinned has been delivered. So that you can be certain that salvation and forgiveness have been completed in Jesus. So that you can be certain that he paid the cost for our sins and that we now stand faultless before God. So that you can be certain that Christ alone is the foundation of our salvation. And three days later, he rose again so that you can be certain that your Redeemer lives. That in him death has been defeated and that no powers of darkness can stand against him. All of it. Every deed Every story, every word, from his birth to the cross and the empty tomb, all of it for you, loved by God, so that you can be certain of the truth. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for the sacrifice you made, for the way that you humbled yourself for people who did not deserve you. And we thank you that you still do that. That even when we don't deserve you, that you are the one who loves us no matter what. We love you, Jesus. And we worship you and we are so glad that we can be here together in your presence. Amen.